Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads. The continuation of magnetic reversals and evolutionary leaps. The True Origin of the Species by Robert W. Felix. Chapter 9. Variations in the accumulation of beryllium-10 are probably caused by solar and geomagnetic modulation. GM Raysbeck. Magnetic Cycle Reversals. You'll often hear that the most recent magnetic reversal occurred about 780,000 years ago at the Bruins Matayama boundary, but that date is way off the mark. At least 10 magnetic reversals and excursions, probably many more, have ravaged our planet during the past 780,000 years. Lachamp Magnetic Reversal In 1967, Norbert von Hamet and J. Babkin discovered a magnetic reversal in the lava, in the lava flows at Lachamp and Olby at Chain-de-Pause, Chain de Volcanoes in central France. Our magnetic field reversed about 20 to 30,000 years ago, they announced, and then remained reversed for about 10,000 years. They called it the Lachamp magnetic reversal. Is it just a coincidence? Von Hamann asked that the return to normal polarity corresponded with the end of an ice age? Though later research placed the Lachamp event at around 44,000 years ago, its discovery made us aware that other magnetic reversals or excursions might have occurred. Gothenburg Magnetic Excursion The most recent excursion, the Gothenburg Magnetic Excursion, occurred about 12,350 years ago, Warner and Lancer. During that excursion, magnetic intensity fell dramatically to about 20% of the Holocene average. And Kinnon and Wentworth, 2003. At the time, magnetic inclination moved 180 degrees. It also fluctuated, making wild swings of up to 80 degrees. Copper. Mono Lake Magnetic Excursion. Another magnetic excursion, the Mono Lake Excursion, occurred about 23,000 years ago from Kuklaberger, Lottie, and Brown. During the Mono Lake event, magnetic intensity fell 10 times faster than normal. Lillicott and Co. Lake Mungo Magnetic Excursion Before that came the Lake Mungo Excursion of 33,500 years ago, Barbadian Flute. And prior to that came the real Lachamp event of about 47,000 years ago, when magnetic intensity fell to less than 15% of today's. Parenthetically, all magnetic reversals and excursions show major decreases in intensity, wrote Hirsch, Bonhamet, and Levi, 1988. See the cycle? Those excursions struck like clockwork every 11,500 years and they've been doing it for millions of years. Geomagnetic reversals about 10,000 years apart have been found in the 65 million year old Deccan traps, said geophysicist Vincent Cordova. Indeed, 10,000-year hiatuses between lavas of opposite polarities have observed, are observed frequently from Watkins. Other scientists agree. Magnetic intensity fluctuations of from 2 to 30,000 years duration appear in the marine record as tiny wiggles and are therefore easy to overlook, says Stephen Conde and Dennis Kent of Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory in 1992. We believe that this type of behavior of tiny wiggles, they said, may have characterized the geomagnetic dynamo throughout the Cenozoic the last 65 million years. 
I think we'll eventually find millions of such tiny wiggles in the geological record. Geomagnetic reversals in ice ages. But here's the topper. Catastrophic cooling and rapid ice buildup accompanied many of those magnetic reversals and excursions. At least 12 ice ages can be correlated with magnetic reversals and excursions in the past 2 million years alone. The Gothenburg magnetic excursion coincided with a period of short-term ice and snow, said Michael R. Rampino of NASA, as did the Lake Mungo excursion, which went rapidly, cooling immediately followed a period of warmth. The Mono Lake magnetic excursion coincided with glaciation. The Blake magnetic reversal at the end of Hyman coincided with glaciation, as did Biwa 1, Biwa 2, and Biwa 3. Parenthetically, Champion, Lanfear, and Kunz of the USGS discussed these magnetic reversals at length. Each of these catastrophic cooling episodes, said Rampino, quote, may have triggered, may have been triggered by a magnetic excursion. The Earth's magnetic field may be directly modulated by precession, precession, end quote. That's from Geology Magazine, December 1979. So there you have it. Polarity reversals, equinox precession and ice ages all march to the same drummer, as do extinctions and new species appearances. Toss in the specter of massive amounts of radioactivity falling in your head and you get the picture. Look at the number of the catastrophes that have befallen our planet in almost perfect sync with equinoctial precession during the last 150,000 years alone. Catastrophes in sync with the procession. 115,000 years ago, the Blake magnetic reversal spikes in radioactive carbon-14 and strontium. Ice age begins abruptly following a period of warmth similar to today's. Sea level surge 20 feet and plunge at least 50 feet in less than a century. 103,000 years ago, the beryllium, beryllium spike. Ice age ends. Major earthquakes shows Barbados and other islands higher. 91,000 years ago, beryllium spike. Ice age begins catastrophically from a climate uh, even warmer from today's. That's Dansgaard and Duplessis. Heavy volcanic activity from Kennett and Huddleston. 80,000 years ago, the ice age ends. Major earthquake shoves Barbados and other islands higher. Lake Missoula flood. 69,000 years ago, Beryllium spike ice age begins abruptly, rising reefs, Yellowstone erupts. 58,000 years ago, beryllium spike, mass extinction, giant pigs, giant baboons, three-toed horses, all gone. Major volcanism ice age ends. 43,000 years ago, Lachamp magnetic excursion, beryllium spike, three times normal, carbon-14 spike, two times normal. Ice Age begins abruptly, rising reefs. 34,000 years ago, the Lake Mungo magnetic excursion, beryllium spike, carbon-14 spike, which is almost twice the normal, short-term ice buildup then Ice Age ends abruptly, Lake Missoula flood, Lake Bonneville flood, intensive volcanism, Neanderthal disappears. 23,000 years ago, Mono Lake magnetic excursion, Ice age begins abruptly, major volcanism, spikes in radioactive beryllium and carbon-14, four to five times normal, mass extinction, European forest elephant disappears, the mammoths are clobbered. 
11,000 years ago, Gothenburg Magnetic Excursion, mass extinction, 72% of large mammal species go extinct, whereas only 10% of small mammals disappear. Spikes in radioactive carbon-14, 3 to 4 times normal, beryllium-10, 2 to 3 times normal, iridium, 2 to 3 times normal, spikes in CO2 and many other elements, rapid and severe ice buildup, then the ice age ends in less than 20 years, that's from Dansgar, and today's warm period begins. Worldwide volcanism, Nile River Flood, Connecticut River Flood, Lake Missoula Flood, Lake Bonneville Flood, Gulf of Mexico Flood, St. Lawrence River Flood, Worldwide Teutonic Uplift, and the creation of the Carolina Bays. And that brings us to today, frighteningly unprepared for the next beat of the magnetic reversal cycle. Now that, let me ask you, knowing that so many violent catastrophes have descended on our planet in sync with geomagnetic reversals or excursions, and knowing that geomagnetic field strength has declined dramatically during the last 2,000 years, and knowing that the rate of decline has picked up, and knowing that the North Magnetic Pole is moving, and knowing that the rate of movement has increased, doesn't it make sense to consider what would happen to us during a magnetic reversal? And that's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10. Quote, it is taken for granted that all the matter of the Earth has been inherited from the time of its initial accretion. Each of these cognate assumptions is false. Matter is created continuously and spontaneously at all levels. End quote. S. Warren Carey. Chapter 10. Tunguska. Dropped from a single B-29 bomber and set to detonate 2,000 feet, the world's first atomic bomb exploded over the Japanese city of Hiroshima at 8.15 a.m. August 6, 1945. Pulverized everything within reach and destroyed almost two-thirds of the hapless city within seconds, generating countless numbers of spontaneous fires producing intense winds that fanned the flames and killed 70 to 80,000 people almost instantly and left another 70,000 maimed and mangled. We like to think of Hiroshima explosion as the biggest explosion in history, but it wasn't. 37 years earlier, at 7 a.m., June 30, 1908, a far bigger blast shattered the stillness over Tunguska, central Siberia. The explosion at about 26,000 feet could be seen from hundreds of miles away. Parenthetically, that's like seeing Boston blow up from New York City or Paris explode from London in the daylight. 1,000 Hiroshima bombs. Detonating with the force of 1,000 Hiroshima bombs, the force of Tunguska explosion was so great that it caused a disturbance in the Earth's magnetic field similar to those following nuclear explosions in the atmosphere, said Professor Clyde Cohen. Recorded on seismographs the world over, it shook its shockwave shot twice from the globe. If that explosion had occurred in Chicago, the thunder would have been heard in Washington, D.C., North Dakota, Georgia, and Oklahoma, said Cohen, co-discoverer of the neutrino. And it was hot. It charged the charred the clothes off a farmer sitting on his porch 36 miles away and burned a neighboring farmer's ears. It looked like a pillar of fire and smoke, said observers, with a roiling, boiling mushroom-shaped cloud rising 16 miles into the cold Siberian sky. Then the cloud spread, glowing particles hung in the skies over northern Europe for the next two nights as if reflecting from a luminescent cloud while large amounts of its debris raced thousands of miles around the globe, reaching California in just two weeks. Skies glowed as far as south as the K 
Caucasus Mountains glowed so brightly, said a local report, that newspapers could be read at midnight without artificial light. Readers wrote the Times in London, remarking that its columns could be read outdoors at midnight, and Duncan Steele instead said Duncan Steele in a 2008 article on Nature. It took two months for the brightness to diminish and disappear. When scientists reached the site of the explosion some 12 years later, they found three-foot diameter trees flattened and snapped off like matchsticks were completely uprooted over an area of 1,200 square miles. Such a blast could wipe out all of New York City and cause great destruction in neighboring Connecticut and New Jersey, said Baxter and Atkins in the book The Fire Came By. Amazingly, no crater has ever been found. Exploding Meteorite? What caused the Tunguska explosion? Scientists at the Center for Relativity at the University of Texas chalked up to, quote, a black hole. Others, such as Cowan, Holtz, Lurie, and Libby, think it was an antimatter nuclear explosion. Then there are those, such as Bacter and Atkins, who swear that it must have been an exploding flying saucer. Most researchers, however, are leaning toward an exploding meteorite. Tectites. But there's a problem with the meteorite theory. In all of the years since that early morning explosion, no one has ever found a trace, none whatsoever, of a meteorite. Small black glassy spherules are the only things that have been found. Called tectites, the spherules are tiny black droplets of glass. Sometimes shaped like teardrops, other times like baby barbells, tectites are commonly, more commonly look like miniature marbles or glass buttons flat on one side. Tectites can only be created, say scientists, in extreme heat and pressure of an impact. Interestingly, Tunguska's tectites contain high amounts of iridium. Iridium has also been found in Antarctic ice that formed at the same time at the Tunguska explosion, says Christopher Chaipa of NASA. Other places where tectites have been found seem to confirm the meteorite theory. Tectites have been found in the 15 million year old Ruskessel crater in southern Germany and again at the 1 million year old Bosumtree crater in Ghana. We just can't get away from meteors, can we? That early morning blast over Tunguska and its tectites sends us right back to the dinosaur extinction and to Mexico's Chiclubuk, oh boy, I probably butchered that, crater, side of the so-called meteor impact that killed the dinosaurs. Chiclubuk oh. crater. Similar black tectites, the same age as Chiclubuk and Tale of the Devil, have been found at Bilak, Haiti. The Haiti tectites are impact splash droplets flung into the sky from this asteroidal collision that then blown from the Yucatan Peninsula to Haiti, said Alan Hildebrand and William Boynton of the University of Arizona. The ejecta layer of the floor of the Caribbean is packed with tectites, huge tectites. Normally no bigger than a BB, Chiclobo's tectites are up to one third of an inch long. Tectites have also been found at other extinctions at the dividing line between the middle and upper Jurassic, and again at the end of the Eocene, when 13 billion tons of tectites were strewn from Georgia to the Indian Ocean. 13 billion tons. Scoop that many tectites into a dump truck, stack those stacks on, on top of one another, and you'd have a rickety pile of dump trucks stretching 247,000 miles into the sky, farther than it is to the moon. From one lonely asteroid, more, quote, proof that tectites came from airborne intruders accumulates daily. Two scientists from the University of California, Philip Clays and Stanley 
V. Margulis, along with Jean-Georges Cassier of Belgium's Royal Institute of Natural Sciences, recently reported evidence that an asteroid caused the Dovinian extinction of 367 million years ago. Why an asteroid? Because of the microscopic glass beads they found in Dovinian black shale near the Belgian town of Senzils. The beads, similar to the KT tektites, have the varying shapes of black bubbles that attest to the formation during an impact, said Cassiar. That debate is over, said impact believers, that glassy spherules are impact products. products. But if spherules are impact products, how do they explain the lack of an impact at Higuska? No impact, just an explosion five miles high in the sky, and no crater, and no meteorite fragments. Even if it was a meteor, why would it explode midair, and with such force? No, I don't think those tectites came from a meteor. No, do I, nor do I think the KT tectites came from a meteor, nor the iridium. Iridium, iridium had other extinctions. Take another look at that iridium. Iridium has been found not only at the end Crustaceous, but at many other mass extinctions. At the Colubian extinction, at the end Dovinian extinction, and I'll show this Canning Basin, at the Tithonian extinction, at the Great per Permian extinction, at the Precambrian, at the end Eocene, when those 13 billion tons of textites were strewn about, at the mid Miocene, and again at the late Pleiocene extinction of 2 million years ago. Iridium has also been discovered in places that impact proponents are hard-pressed to explain. Iridium has been found at the Ferguson Ranch in eastern Montana at the base of the Lower Zecole, says paleobiologist Stephen M. Stanley. Iridium at the base of a layer of coal. Another unexplained layer of iridium had concentrations 250 times greater than normal has been found in a swamp in the Rotten Basin in northern New Mexico at the base of a layer of coal. There's no known process, say for plex scientists, that would create a single layer of iridium at the base of a coal bed. So many, so many iridium-laced boundary clays are associated with coal and carbon-like deposits that scientists wonder if there might be a connection. Articles by Block and Dams and Kucha and Wessel in Dynamics of Extinction point that way. The articles tell of finding excess iridium not only in coal, but also in Kerrigan, in Permian limestones, and in mid-crustaceous bituminous shales. And in his book, Evolutionary Catastrophes, on page 66, the French geophysicist Vincent Cordelet tells of the discovery of a, quote, a correlation between the distributions of iridium and carbon End quote, and further, quote, that fossil brosians, generally marine animals that live in colonies, were encrusted with this carbon, end quote. It's two anomalies in one. Why did so many carbon deposits form at the KT boundary? And why do we find so much iridium in or near the same deposits? Some 200,000 to 300,000 metric tons of iridium were deposited on our planet at the KT extinction, says Corlay. Are we supposed to believe that all of that iridium came from one lonely meteor? Excess osmium. All sorts of weird stuff rained out of those KT skies. Excess osmium, for example, was found in encrustaceous clays in many locations, including Denmark and New Mexico. Excess osmium is even found in boundary clays at the Columbia River. Where did that osmium come from? Here we go again. 
The osmium came from a meteor, say impact believers. Iridium and osmium, they insist, can only be produced in massive stars that have used up their supplies of hydrogen and helium. Once the hydrogen and helium are gone, these stars begin burning forbidden elements such as neon and carbon, thus starting fusion reactions. Then the stars explode, sending huge chunks of themselves reeling into space, blasting iridium and osmium to every corner of the galaxy. Iridium and osmium and all of the heavy elements must therefore have formed safe impact components just before and during a brief spectacular and extremely hot supernova event. Iridium and osmium are literally, they say, the byproducts of thermonuclear explosions. Parenthetically, make a note of that in your memory bank, iridium and osmium and all of the heavy elements are byproducts of thermonuclear explosions. Therefore, the only way iridium and osmium could get to Earth, impact believers insist, is if they were carried here by a meteor. A side note from me, the reader, um, when he just mentioned about hot supernova events and how those are formed, kind of goes hand in hand with Ben Davison's theory of the recurrent micronova from our own sun. And sidebar. Strontium spike gets KT extinctions. But what about all of the other metals in the boundary clays? Many boundary clays are rich in palladium, gold, nickel, and platinum. Quote, certainly more than we would be expected would be expected from a meteoric source, says Charles Officer of Dartmouth College. There's astronomy spike too, says paleontologist Rob Thomas at West Montana College in Dillon, Montana. Parenthetically, make another note, there's a strontium spike at the KT extinction. And that's just the beginning. Boundary clays at Caravaca, Spain, show spikes of cobalt, chromium, antimony, arsenic, and selenium, said Officer and Drake in Science in 1985. Again, it's more than you'd expect from a meteoric source. And then, of course, there's Wendy Wolbach's ubiquitous layer of suit right at the KT boundary. Parenthetically, Wendy was a graduate student who found the worldwide layer of suit at the KT boundary. See Chapter 3. Where did, those all, where did all of those elements come from? They did come from the sky, I propose, but not from some rambling asteroid gone astray. All of those elements were deposited on this planet by massive explosions, underground explosions, underwater explosions, and atmospheric explosions. Those elements were created not on some untraceable, unexploding star a bazillion miles away, but right here on our own skies above the dinosaurs' heads, just like carbon. Carbon forms in the sky. That's right, just like carbon. I'm not guessing nor proposing nor theorizing here, it's a fact. Carbon does rain from the sky, and we've known it for years. Have you ever heard of radiocarbon dating? Of course you have, unless you've been living in a cave but you may not have known how it works. Radiocarbon dating was developed in the late 1940s by William F. Libby at the University of Chicago after he discovered that carbon is constantly formed in the sky. Carbon is continuously created in the atmosphere, day and night, rain or shine, 24 hours a day, by the interaction of cosmic rays and nitrogen atoms. Called nuclear electron capture, it's a process where electrons are added to or removed from atoms or molecules that were previously neutral. Traveling at nearly the speed of light, the energetic particles and cosmic rays split the nuclei of atmospheric gases, creating the background radiation to which we are exposed to every day. Add a neutron to almost any atom, said Libby, and it will become one unit heavier and frequently radioactive. Tiny amounts of radioactive carbon-14 are falling on our hot heads this very second. 
Eventually, the newly created radiocarbon atoms get absorbed into the bodies of all living plants and animals, but only for as long as the plants and animals are alive. When the plants and animals die, the radiocarbon in the organic tissue immediately begins to decay. But the radiocarbon doesn't disappear. It changes into inert atoms of nitrogen, at rates which, with the right equipment, can be measured. Libby, a one-time member of the Manhattan Project and former commissioner of the Atomic Energy Commission, reasoned that he could use the decay rate to find the time of death of any fossil. All he had to do was measure how many carbon atoms in the fossil were still radioactive. He was correct. Radiocarbon dating works remarkably well for any fossils less than 40,000 years old. Now let me ask you, if we know that new matter, radioactive matter, is constantly formed in the atmosphere, is it possible, given the right circumstances, that the rate of accumulation could increase dramatically? Especially when we know that carbon is not the only element created in the sky. Beryllium-10. Take beryllium-10. Radiogenic beryllium-10, the metallic element, is created much like carbon when cosmic rays smash into nitrogen and oxygen molecules over the north and south poles. The beryllium-10 then drifts to the Earth where it becomes embedded in the polar ice sheets. Another radioactive element, helium-3, is also formed in the sky. Radiogenic hydrogen tritium is made the same way, so is potassium-40. Even iridium, scientists confess, constantly drifts from the sky. It's a normal, everyday occurrence. Newly created material rains into our heads all the time. About 100,000 kilograms or 220,000 pounds of cosmic debris falls on the Earth every day. Nearly 40,000 tons of microscopic particles rain down on the Earth each year, agrees Giselle Winkler of Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. 40,000 tons per year. That's during a normal year. What if something should happen to drive that creation process crazy? What if new matter were created in an overwhelming, overwhelmingly excess during mass extinctions? I think it is. Atomic bombs release carbon-14. Oh, by the way, there's another way to make carbon-14. Atomic bombs release enormous amounts of radioactive carbon-14 into the air, said Sam Cohen in his 1983 book, The Truth About the Neutron Bomb. Carbon-14 is one of the byproducts of neutron bombs. Reach 20,000 tons of TNT equivalent, you get about 2,000 pounds, or sorry, two pounds of radioactive fallout. Cohen should know what he's talking about. He invented the neutron bomb. That's why Cohen, Ulturi, and Libby, the same Libby who helped develop radioactive carbon dating, thought Tunguska was an antimatter nuclear explosion. Knowing that the carbon-14 is absorbed by plants, they looked at tree rings in the years immediately following the explosion. They found a spike in carbon-14 in 1909, the very next year. Perhaps Cowan and his colleagues were on something. Perhaps it was an antimatter explosion. Come to think of it, with its luminous skies and mushroom cloud, doesn't Tunguska seem suspiciously similar to a nuclear explosion? It may have well have been. According to A.B. Zolotov, a prominent Soviet geophysicist who led several research expeditions to the site in the late 1950s, that blast over Tunguska was indeed a nuclear explosion. Even those who think Tunguska was caused by an exploding flying saucer, Baxter and Atkins, think the explosion was, quote, decidedly atomic. Nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. Uncanny, isn't it? How that word keeps cropping up? Quote, like a nuclear holocaust, said scientists of the KT extinction. 
equivalent to the energy of one billion Hiroshima bombs, they reported. Like a long nuclear winter, they said. Like a strange love potion. More damage than could have been caused by 10,000 times the whole of the world's atomic bombs, the oceans were heated as though from behind by a nuclear furnace. Let's get off this meteor kick right now. If iridium and osmium and all of the heavy elements are byproducts of thermonuclear explosions, who needs a meteorite to explain? We had a hot, violent nuclear explosion right here on our own planet in the ground and in the skies, and the gusts got proof that it is possible. Principal health hazard in radioactive fallout. Still one more proof? Look at the strontium. With all of the headlines given to iridium, we've ignored one of the most important clues of them all. We've ignored the strontium. What's so important about the strontium? Strontium is the principal health hazard in radioactive fallout. We find it scattered all over the world right at the KT boundary. Not only at the end Cretaceous sudden increase in the amounts of radioactive strontium, have also been found in other extinctions. Sudden increases in strontium occurred in the early Pennsylvanian and the early Triassic and the early Tertiary, said Zell Peterman, in Megacycles Long-Term Episodicity in Earth and Planetary History. A marked shift in carbon in strontium also occurred at the Great Permian extinctions at Douglas Irwin in Nature. Call it mutation, call it creation, call it what you will, with so much radioactivity raining from the sky, the possibilities for new genetic combinations must be endless. And that's the end of chapter 10 of chapter 9 and 10 of Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origins of Species by Robert W. Felix. Thank you all for listening and tune in again next time, but we'll continue the book uh, at a much shorter intervals from the last break that I took. Apologies about that. I had many things going on, all of which have been mostly resolved, and I should be able to get back on track to read this book and other books such as Dark Winter by John Casey and others that I have found that I think would be uh, fascinating to discover. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I will see you, rather, you will hear me next time. Thank you.